Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Today, I want to look at what happened in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection, and then next week, we're going to look at John chapter 21, see how it comes to end. And spoiler alert, it's going to have ties to the resurrection as well, because everything we do should have ties to that as well. So, as we look at John chapter 20, we'll kind of set the stage to say that the days surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ were chaotic and were interesting for the disciples would be an egregious understatement to make, right? To say that they were chaotic. We often think about Easter as being a day of joy and celebration, and we think of it as being peaceful, and then we go hunt eggs, and we dye them, and we go eat ham, and we eat it for a week because it's left over, and then our pants are harder to button when you're getting ready for church on the next Sunday morning. That's just personal experience. If nobody else had that trouble, that's just me, okay? But we look at Easter and we're like, man, this is awesome because we're looking at it 2,000 years after the resurrection and we can celebrate it. But for the original disciples, it was different. It was chaotic. It was riddled with fear, with skepticism, with bewilderment. We saw that even Peter, the rock, man, Petros, he walked away amazed and dazed and confused even after seeing an empty tomb. See, for some people, seeing is not always believing. We often say, if I could just see what they saw, I would believe even more than they believed. This is why we get mad at Thomas, right? It's why we look at Judas and we're like, man, how did you, how could you betray him? I mean, it's Jesus. I often wonder and I often try to, I think sometimes, if I were alive back then, now, I was brought to church. I, have, I am 42 years old, so I've been in church for 42 years and nine months, okay? Because I was in church before I was out of the womb. So I'd probably be one of those real steeped religious type of people that really had a hard time following this new guy, Jesus. And that shakes me to the core. Even for the disciples that followed him for three and a half years and saw the miracles and everything we're seeing, last Sunday we saw they struggled and they're still struggling even after seeing the resurrected Savior. Today we live in a day and age where people doubt. People say, man, that's just a fairy tale. That's ancient nonsense. How can you still believe that? Why do you give every Sunday and why do you give your life to this story? Because for those of us who have really experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, it's more than just a story, right? But for Peter and James and John, it was more than just a story too. They were living their life and it was very chaotic for them, right? See, they had invested three and a half years of their lives going all in on Jesus. Some of us have difficulty investing 90 minutes a week right, to come to a worship service. Some of us say, I have a hard time investing 15 minutes a day in just talking with Jesus. They gave three and a half years of their life to following Jesus around. They believed him to be the Messiah. They saw him perform miracles. They heard him preach in ways that they'd never heard anyone else preach. Could you imagine going to church and being bored by a sermon? I mean, how horrible must that be, right? That never happens today because we preach like Jesus. No, no, up until then, no one had ever used an illustration before. No one had ever used a parable or a metaphor. They had just sat up there and read the scripture. And Jesus preached and expounded on scripture in a way that they'd never heard before. They received and they witnessed the grace and the love and the compassion that they never thought could exist in human means. 
They moved from village to village, hanging on every word that came out of the mouth of Jesus. But then the tide turns, and this Messiah that they had believed to be God himself, and every word that he spoke was the very words of God himself. He seems larger than life. All of a sudden, he looks really weak one night on Passover when he's arrested and he's taken captive and he's tried and within 24 hours he's hanging on a cross bleeding and dying and then he draws his last breath and within 24 hours after seeing this great man who had just changed the covenant in that upper room he's laying in a tomb to say that their lives was shattered their whole world their view of everything was shattered is an understatement as well. Some abandoned Jesus. They were sent reeling. And some decided, I can't take this anymore. So they went away in shame for having abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need. Some of them went away in regret for having denied knowing him. But all of them left in fear of what was to happen next. And then resurrection morning comes. And we looked at the details of that last week. And it comes in like a wrecking ball, man. Did I just use a Miley Cyrus reference? <laughs> Sorry about that. All right, I really didn't mean to. But it does. Resurrection comes in like a wrecking ball, right? It moves that stone away and it hits them square in the face. Jesus is gone and they begin to try to make sense of that. Have you ever been in the position where you're trying to make sense of what Jesus is doing? When it doesn't look like he's where he should be or he's doing what you expected him to do. And you're like, okay, how do I make sense of this? This is where the disciples were. We looked at the details of what happened last Sunday morning and we saw Mary Magdalene and we saw John at the tomb scared to go in. But he finally steps in in faith and he goes in to see him. And he's not there and he sees the tomb and it says he saw the empty tomb and then he believed. He did three things. He went in, he came near, he drew new. He drew near so he could see it. He went in, he saw it. And then he believed. So let's look a few hours after morning into the evening. And we want to see what happened on Easter night. So beginning in John chapter 20, beginning in verse number 19, let's read through the rest of the chapter. It says, when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Now that's important, right? Because if their Savior just resurrected from the dead... And they're all in. Why are they still locked behind closed doors for fear? Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, then they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, then they are retained. Okay, so let's stop right there. We're going to come back to the verses in just a second. So keep, keep, keep your Bible open, okay? So, so what's happened here? Jesus has resurrected from the dead. It has been a very busy morning. There's been running back and forth to the tomb a couple of times for Mary Magdalene. Peter and, Jane, or Peter and, and John have that foot race that John obviously wins and has to tell everybody about. They see the empty tomb, but they don't see Jesus. Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb. She sees Jesus. She comes back and says, I've seen Jesus. And they're still sitting there behind closed doors, right? They're there and they're hiding out. No egg hunt, no ham dinner, no laying around posting family pics on social media. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what they were doing at this time. They're barricaded behind locked doors in a safe house, wondering if they'll be the next to be crucified. That's what they're doing. 
They're wondering how long it would be before the wanted posters are up around the city of Jerusalem with their pictures on them because the Roman government and the Jewish authorities have said it must be the disciples that took the body to try to carry on this ruse for people. So they're hiding out. They don't want to be seen, right? And then from out of nowhere, Jesus' body does show up. They're like... He's here, except he's not laying down dead. He's standing up and he's alive and he is really alive. He's in gleaming robes and he's in this perfected form, this resurrected form in all of his glory. And he hadn't sneaked in the back door. He didn't like come in with a secret knock. He didn't do anything. They were just standing. He was just standing there. I don't know, maybe they had their backs turned and they were swapping Easter basket candy or something like that. You know, like grandma gave me Twix and I like, and I like Snickers or something. So they're, they're swapping with one another. I don't know why. But they look and Jesus is all of a sudden there. And the disciples are like, whoa, that is such a Jesus thing to do. Jesus would show up out of nowhere. And he would look like really awesome right now. No one can die and then three days later look as good as Jesus, right? And then he shows in the holes in his hands and in his side. And we know that nails went through his feet, right? And I've always wondered this. Why doesn't he show them his feet? There's a significance to this, because feet are gross, people. That's why he doesn't show them his feet, right? And can you imagine how much more gross his feet would be if they had, like, nail holes in them? They're already ugly to look at as it is. Now put holes in them, and that's going to be uglier to look at, right? The disciples, the Bible says, rejoice at their first sight of the resurrected Christ, of the risen Messiah. Then Jesus gets down, right down to business, and he says, look... I didn't just raise from the dead for you guys to sit around and have a party and eat eggs and ham. I rose from the dead because there's work for you to do. My work of the cross, my work of restoring faith, my work of restoring mankind has finished. And I'm about to go to heaven to start a new work of preparing a place for all these people. But I need you to go and collect all of them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit and some other things that we don't have time to get into. But he basically foretells that the Great Commission is coming and that they would be telling everyone. They wouldn't stay hidden behind a closed door with this secret knowledge. They would be going out and telling everyone that they saw that the Savior is alive today. And this is the beautiful power scene, powerful scene that we see. And guess what? The Bible says that Thomas misses it all. I mean, what a moment it must have been. How awesome it must have been for them. How powerful it must have been. And poor Thomas, he misses it. He wasn't there. I don't know if he had gone out to make a Starbucks run. I don't know if he'd gone out to put more quarters in the donkey stand, uh, you know, because he was parallel parked or whatever, but he wasn't there. But verse 24 tells us more about what happens. Verse number 24, the Bible says, but Thomas called Didymus or called it the twin was one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. All right, so when you read that, don't say, the other disciples were telling them that we've seen the Lord. No, it's like, how do you think they were telling him? Look, we've seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark in the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, then I will never believe. So what happens? The disciples come to him and like, we've seen the Lord. First things first. This is not, this is not just something they're like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, we saw Jesus just a little while ago. You missed him. No, he walks in and he's like carrying, carrying stuff in his hands. He's like, okay, who had the salted caramel frap? And they're like, put it down. We've seen Jesus. Right? They're excited because this is the first thing on their mind. It's on their heart, right? 
And they're like, he is there. And, and what, what kills me is probably because the women, you know, Mary Magdalene and the women that went to the tomb, Mary Magdalene especially like, over in the corner, like, been there, done that, man. Like, I've been telling you this all day long. He's here. He's alive. And y'all didn't believe me. Now you got to, you know, it's like, I, and they're like, they're, they can be taught. Look, right? The second thing you have to assume is that the very first thing they say when they see him is we've seen the Lord. Not, hey, Thomas, how you doing? We've seen the Lord. As Thomas walks in, he's like, okay. And he gets hit by that. And he's dealing with the shock of the moment. And again, he hasn't seen. And so he says, dude, unless I see myself, and unless I put my fingers in his side, and, or unless I put my finger in the holes of his hand, and I put my hand in his side. Now, let's break that down. That's really gross. Why does Thomas want to stick his finger in the holes and his hand in his side? That's disgusting. Thomas is a weird dude, right? No, what he's saying is, it's so impossible, it's never going to happen. He's done. He is checked out on Jesus. Jesus has let him down for the last time. You know what? There are times when we get there. There are times and there are folks today that are struggling with that because it's been a long two years, right? We've been through a pandemic. We've seen humanity really show itself at its worst lately. All throughout history, there's been evidence of this. Evidence if we want to look at it and say, look, Jesus isn't alive. If Jesus was alive, the world would look different. There's a lot of Thomases out there today who maybe gave him a shot and said, you know what? I gave you a shot. You let me down. And so he is still reeling with doubt, right? And that right there earns him the name Doubting Thomas. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 26. The scene breaks for a few days and we pick back up a week later, eight days later, somewhere around there. It says in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were indoors again. And this time Thomas was with them even though the doors were locked. Okay, so it's been a week. They've seen Jesus, right? What is the status of the door? Still locked. Remember that, okay? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed or happy, joyful, confident are those who have not seen and yet believe. Do you know who those people are? It's you and me. It's the people who didn't have the, didn't have the opportunity to be in the room that day. What he was telling Thomas is even though you weren't here the other day, you still could have believed just like them. If you had just trusted me. So seven or eight days pass since the resurrection. Thomas still hasn't seen Jesus. You have to imagine he's been hearing it all week, man. We saw Jesus and you didn't, man. What a loser. Where were you? And Thomas is not brought to be thinking, man, maybe they're telling the truth. He's still, after eight days of hearing constant testimony, constantly hearing the gospel preached, the message of the resurrection to him, he's still saying, no. Why? Because he's so mad. He's so disappointed. He's so dejected. He has, he has no will to try to put his faith back in Jesus again. He's not going to do that again. The doubts were just becoming too much. And here's what he had done. He became more loyal to his doubt and his skepticism than he was at one time loyal to Jesus. So Jesus tells him, don't be faithless, but believe. He looks at Thomas and he says, 
here's my hands. You need to put your fingers in the holes of my hands. Thomas, I think that's a little weird, but have at it. You need to stick your hand in my side. Go ahead. Did the guys, did the other guys tell Jesus that? No, because the other guys hadn't seen Jesus all week either. So Thomas immediately knows this is not just something that he overheard me say. This is something that an omniscient, all-knowing God, because he reads me heart and soul. Folks, that's the God we serve. That's the Savior we have. He knows us inside and out. We don't need to put on airs. We don't need to pretend. We can't pretend with God. And that signaled to Thomas, not only is he Jesus, but he is God. And that's why he says, my Lord and my God. We're going to look a little bit more at that statement here in just a second. And then he says, because you believe me, right? So here's the thing. Jesus says, you've seen me to all of the guys. He doesn't just say it to Thomas. He says it to all the people in the room because every single one of them, to a man and to a woman, struggled with the resurrection after seeing the empty tomb. It wasn't until they saw Jesus that they believed. Even for Thomas, it wasn't until they saw him and heard him and saw evidence. And so until they saw him, he believed. And he said, blessed is those who believe without seeing. Doesn't that seem like a pretty tall order though? Let, let, let's be honest. Let's fast forward 2,000 years and say, that seems like a tall order, right? When it really comes down and the rubber meets the road, why are you a Christian? Maybe you're here and you say, I'm not. I'm here because I got questions or I'm trying to figure it out. Maybe you're here and you're skeptical. You're on the other side. You're on the side of, I'm about done with this. And I just need one more thing to send me out the door or to make me turn this off. I want to submit to you this morning that Jesus is the answer to all of our doubt. Whatever you're trying to do to overcome your doubt or to deal with your doubt, you have a choice. You can be more loyal to your doubt or you can run to Jesus because only Jesus is the one who dispels the doubts. But is it not fair or is it, isn't it not fair that we can't see Jesus? Wouldn't it be better for us today in 2022 if at night when we were having questions, Jesus just showed up in the room and said, hey man, look at, my, look at the holes in my hand. For me, I'm thinking that's all the proof I need. Everything's going to be fine. I'm ready to go hit the day. That's what the disciples got. I mean, why can't we have that, right? He says more blessed is that. And, here's, and, and it gets even worse for us. Look at verse number 30. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Oh, so the disciples not only got what they saw in the word, the walking on the water, the healing people, the turning water to wine, all the, the, 5, 000, the feeding of the 5,000. If that doesn't make a Baptist believe, I don't know what will. They got to see all that. And then the Bible says there's stuff that Jesus did that's not even recorded in the Bible that we got to see. And they still struggled with their faith. Why is it that we're left to have more faith than the disciples did? It doesn't seem fair. And John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It says all of this is here in the Word to believe it. Because the very Word of God should be just as good as seeing the very face of God. So, they can see a whole bunch. And this is why so many people still struggle to believe. is because... That's why you, you may be here today and you identify as a Christian, but you still have doubts when it comes to the stuff in this book. You look at it and you think, man, some of this stuff just seems impossible. Some of this stuff just seems unbelievable. And now we're 
in modern society and we're progressing and we see revolution happening within our culture, we're looking at some of it and we say, man, some of it just doesn't even make sense when I hold it up to my culture right now. Newsflash, this isn't the first time that's happened in history. You have skepticism, especially in light of all the past couple years that we've seen, wondering, okay, if Jesus is alive, why does he let so many people die? If Jesus is alive and resurrected over death and over sin, then why does cancer still exist? Why did AIDS become a thing? Why are there people starving? Why do we have to pack blessing bags to take to people who are homeless? Why are they homeless? If Jesus is alive, then why are we dealing with all of this stuff? Isn't a good God who's alive, what's he doing? Is he lazy? And this is what you're wrestling with. And this is what many people are wrestling with. You have doubts and those doubts are hardening you and making you numb to what God is doing and flooding your eyes with tears like Mary to where you can't see the image of God and you can't seem to make out the shape of what Jesus is doing anymore. You dare not tell anybody this because you're in church or because you're supposed to be a believer and the reality of doubt and the response of that, you can't have any questions. I want to submit to you this morning that faith that follows Jesus is not a faith that is absent of questions or struggle. The faith that follows Jesus is the faith that just keeps his eyes on Jesus. The faith that follows Jesus is not one that is absent of, of, of struggle. It's a faith that just follows him in the midst of the struggle. So I want to look at a couple of things that conquers doubt this morning that we see from here that we can apply. Number one is doubt is an, in, and, and trust me, the, the, the introduction was the meat of the message. These are just application points, okay? So you're looking at it going, okay, dude's been going for a while. We're now getting into the points. All right, no. <clears throat> Number one, doubt is an inevitable consequence of the faith. Doubt is an inevitable consequence of the faith. See, last week I mentioned that every single early disciple in the resurrection narrative wrestled with doubts about him right? This is something that we cannot let go of. Every single follower of Christ has wrestled with doubts about him. Thomas gets all the bad press, but Mary Magdalene doubted, Peter doubted, all the disciples doubted, John doubted, all of these people doubted. And even before the resurrection, some of like the superstars in the Bible, they doubted too. John the Baptist, all right, let's start with him. Do you know what Jesus said about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was, in Jesus' eyes, the greatest preacher and prophet that ever walked the face of the earth. Now, when Jesus says that, that means it's true, right? Until Derek, no, I'm just teasing. Okay, so John the Baptist is the greatest preacher and prophet of all time. But after preaching that Jesus was the Messiah and living in a wilderness as a homeless man, taking blessing bags from the temple, wearing a frock of camel hair and eating locust and wild honey... And baptizing people and declaring that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, John gets discouraged because Jesus isn't bringing the kingdom as fast as he thought he should. And so in Luke 7, John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus through a couple of guys, and he asks him in Luke 7, 19, says, are you the one who is to come, or should I expect someone else? Wow. Gave his whole life up. Wouldn't buy a house, wouldn't even buy a tiny house, man. He just lived in the wilderness because he gave everything he had to Jesus. He baptized people, said, he's coming. This is the Lamb of God. And then in private with Jesus, he looks at Jesus and he's like, Should, are you the real deal? Are you the real deal? James, the brother of Jesus, tells us this. 
James went on to be a great leader of the church. He wrote the book of James, but while Jesus was alive, James, I don't know if it was out of jealousy or what, but he didn't believe Jesus. And he told everybody publicly that Jesus was insane, that he lost his mind. The disciples, get this, the disciples at the moment of Jesus' ascension in Matthew chapter 28. I want you to see, because we often skip over verse 17 when we focus on the great commission down at the bottom, but here's what it says in verse number 17. It says, when they saw him, and what is going on is Jesus is literally levitating up into the sky, going back to the Father, and it says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but, what? Some doubted. I don't know about you, but if Jesus, who I saw was in a tomb, is standing there on top of a mountain, and all of a sudden he's starting to float up into the sky, and the skies are opening to receive him, I'm looking and I'm going, you know what? I just still got some questions. You know what this tells us? Doubt is an inevitable part of following Jesus. Because following Jesus is inevitably going to lead us to places that we don't know if we can go. Jesus didn't even know if he could go to the hill, remember? When he sweated drops of blood. It's always going to lead us to places where we don't understand. It doesn't matter how much proof we get. There's always going to be something about Jesus that we're going to doubt. That's why it's called faith. You see, an unfortunate byproduct of living a life of faith in Jesus is that there are inevitably going to be seasons of doubt, seasons of questions. It happens to the worst among us and it happens to the best among us. There's going to be times when life doesn't pan out the way that you hoped it would. There's going to be times when God isn't working in a way that makes much sense to you and you're going to be faced with the same question that John the Baptist had. After all this time of believing in Jesus, should I really be focusing on someone else? There's going to be so, there are so many today who are looking full-faced into this disillusionment because Jesus hasn't panned out to be the savior they thought he would be. And I blame a lot of times, I blame some of that on like our American mindset that for good to happen, I must be comfortable at all times. Stuff like that. But we become disillusioned when we build up a Jesus that Jesus never promised to be. But if doubt is part of the Christian experience, then why is it so alarming when people walk away from the faith? You see, there's so many people today that say that they're leaving the faith. Every day, I open, just about every week, I open up an email of some other Christian leader or something that's maybe fallen from grace or gotten into an affair or has now said they no longer identify as a Christian or they had questions about the faith and they had questions about Jesus and these accounts are heartbreaking. To this I have to say again, when we become more loyal to our doubts and our skepticism that are going to be inevitable and we cease to be loyal to Jesus, we are always going to, we are always going to spiral into darkness. The disciples all thought about walking away. John the Baptist, the best preacher of all time, thought about walking away. Why? Because he became more loyal to his doubts than to his faith in Jesus. But here's the thing. Doubt is inevitable, but faith becomes stronger with each doubt conquered. See, leave it to God to turn our hardships into glory. Our faith doesn't grow without being tested, right? Some people are tempted to fall into a cycle of faith on the mountain and doubt in the valley, right? But if faith has never put us in a place that stretches our sense of certainty and security in God, can we really call it faith? I told you we'd get to Romans, right? Well, here it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. We did this right before we, we stopped for Easter. Now, in this hope, we were saved, but hope is, that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he already sees? See, we're to come to Christ by faith. 
But he says, if your faith and your hope is already seen, it's not faith. The Bible promises there will be a day when all of our faith will be made sight. But that day's not here yet. And so in the middle of that is doubt that we fix our eyes on Jesus to endure. One of my friends from Somerset, he said this, I remember him saying this all the time, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. So I want you to consider the, the disciples' strength and faith, right? They're back there. They're struggling to believe in the resurrection. We don't know a lot about what they were doing. They were in hiding on Easter night. Maybe they thought it was over with Jesus. Maybe they thought that, that you know, all of this disciple thing was done and they'd given up three years of their life and it was time to move on to something else. Maybe they were all refreshing their resumes on Indeed, saying fully trained disciple, willing to follow someone, just turn some water into wine for us and we're ready to go. I don't know. One thing we do know is that they were in hiding because they were fearful of the Jews, right? They were fearful of the Jews. But Jesus shows up and their spirit changes from fear to joy. Look again at verse number 20. He says, having saw this, he showed his hand, he showed, or having said this, he showed him his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Uh, note this. Does anybody see the irony that John chapter 20, verse 20, so like 2020, um, has to do with the disciples' first vision of Jesus, right? It's like 2020 vision. Everything becomes clear now. That's cool. Uh, it's just a little bit of numerology for you. Just psychotic numerology. Back to the message. What happened when they saw Jesus? They rejoiced, right? That kind of rejoicing is the term uh, rejoice, which is Cairo, which denotes that it is not only a feeling, an expression of joy, but is also an action that one chooses. Meaning, I'm so happy and I just let, I finally let it out, right? I've made an action. I've decided to rejoice. This choice was the action to surrender to the belief that Jesus was alive. How do we know that they were turned from believers, or from doubters to believers? Because the very first person they saw after Jesus left the room was Thomas and they couldn't contain it. They began to testify. So the disciples' faith was strengthened by their conquered doubt. Jesus showed up to conquer the doubt and it strengthened their faith to the place of rejoicing. And then Thomas, man, he's even more doubtful. He's skeptical. He's mad. And I think he gets most of the press, not because he was worse than the other people who doubted, but because he's the last one that's mentioned. And because there's more detail about what took place. Thomas is equally as adamant in his faith as he is in his doubt. What's beautiful is what we see about Thomas is after he doubts, look at verse 27, 28. It says, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Again, Thomas, that's really gross. Why do you want to do that? Thomas in verse 28 says, my Lord and my God. So Thomas moves on beyond rejoicing and he moves to worshiping because he ascribes that Jesus is the Lord and he is God. And that's what worship is. Worship is surrendering ourselves to the deity of another. And Thomas, who just a moment ago said, he has disappointed me and he has let me down for the last time and I am cutting him out of my life. I'm moving on with another chapter of my life. By the way, why do you think Thomas wasn't there the first time anyway? I think it's because he was done. And he ran, runs into the disciples and he sees them and, they, and so he just, he's got enough skepticism and he wants to see so Thomas moves beyond rejoicing straight up to worship. See, our doubts, <laughs> Satan means to destroy us with them. And if you let Satan have them, that's what he'll do. But if we give our doubts to the Lord, he'll turn them into stronger faith. Man, that was good. That wasn't in the notes. I'm going to say this again. Our doubts, Satan will use them to destroy. But if we will give our doubts and our skepticism to Jesus and say, do with them what you will, he will turn them into stronger faith. 
But so many of us are more loyal to our doubts than we are loyal to the Savior. And lastly, this morning, Jesus is the only answer to conquer all of our doubts and all of our questions. He's the only one. Look at verse 31 again. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Tells us the whole purpose statement of the Bible. Tells us the purpose statement of the book of John, but also the whole Bible. This word is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you have life in his name. <laughs> the reason that Thomas believed and the disciples rejoiced was not that they all of a sudden just conjured up some last measure of faith that they had when they were following. It's because they saw Jesus and he turned that doubt into fresh faith. Again, who is Jesus is what makes our faith relevant, right? It's who Jesus is that makes it relevant. Not who we want him to be, not whether he's done what we think he should do. See, what made Thomas so stubborn to believe in the first place? We last week look, put, our, put ourselves in the mindset of John, who was the only one who saw the resurrection, so he was struggling. Let's put ourselves in the mindset of Thomas. What made Thomas so stubborn to believe, right? His 10 friends had been telling him all week long, man, Jesus is alive. We saw him, we saw him, we saw him. And it's still not enough for him to believe. Well, put yourself in Thomas's shoes. Jesus had just shattered, just shattered every idea, every framework of what the Messiah should have been. Growing up as a good Jewish boy, he was taught that the Messiah would not be a slaughtered lamb, but would be a conquering king. He would politically set everyone free. He would put to death all of the enemies of God. And he would set up his new kingdom on earth. And instead of doing that, he surrenders to the Roman authorities. He allows himself to be tried and executed by people way less strong than he is supposed to be as the Messiah. Instead of showing up and lowering the boom on all of the dirty Romans, he befriends tax collectors and he spends time around prostitutes and he defends adulterers and went near the lepers. And instead of driving out the Romans, he brought their kids back to life and he healed their servants. And then he died in weakness and shame. And there is no framework in the Jewish mind, in Thomas's mind, for him to accept a Messiah like that. So Thomas was looking at Jesus and Jesus was a huge disappointment. Jesus to Thomas was a lie. And he's thinking, when all of his friends are telling him, we saw Jesus, he's thinking, you may have, but fool me once, shame on me. Or shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He's like, I'm not going to play the fool again. And that may actually explain why Thomas wasn't with the disciples. Because he's done with it. But for some reason, he comes back. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've built up an image or an idea of Jesus in your head where Jesus is the one who conquers all of your mountains. He makes all that go away. And I realize there are people that stand behind pulpits that are nicer than this and open up Bibles that are bigger than this. And they say things like, if you just come to Jesus, all your stuff will go away. If you sow a seed of faith, you're going to get that money right back and you're going to get... That's not what the Word declares. The Word says, Jesus himself said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the humble. And he says, when you follow me, you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Not take up your wallet and open up for the blessings. Does he promise to bless us? Yes. But he doesn't promise that the blessings are going to look exactly the way we want them to be. And this is why so many people struggle to follow. Because following Jesus isn't about following for Jesus' sake. Following Jesus is about following for my sake. 
And that's the wrong way to look at it. Maybe you've begged for answers and understanding to some difficult questions and you feel like you're being ignored. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't really answer their questions here. All he does is show up. Thomas really didn't have a question. He's like, unless I see all that, man, I ain't believing. Matter of fact, Thomas did have questions before. He's like, where are you going when you go to prepare a place? And the disciples all wanted to know, are you going to set up, when are you going to set up your kingdom? John the Baptist wanted to know all of that. Jesus never addresses it. Next week, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. He never addresses it. All he does is show up. And he says, look to me. The answer to our doubts is not having all of our answers, our, our questions answered. The answer to our doubts is Jesus. Because Jesus is the universal question. And in showing up, he invites them to trust him, who he is, and what he promised to do. See, Jesus wasn't shaping up to be the Savior that Thomas wanted him to be. But Jesus was the Savior that Thomas needed. And Jesus may not be shaping up to be the Messiah that you wanted him to be, but he will always be the Savior you needed. Always. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Our doubts are conquered, looking squarely and completely at the conquering King of Jesus Christ. As we close out this morning, I know you're probably thinking, you're speaking to a skeptic in the room. No, I'm speaking to each one of us because at one point or another, we all play the skeptic. And let me say this with as much love as I can. If you're sitting there today, you say, I absolutely have no doubts in my faith. No doubts whatsoever. There are no doubts in my mind about everything. Can I just submit to you that maybe, just maybe, you're not going as far in your faith as you need to be. Because as we doubt, as we have those, those, skeptic, those skeptical questions, that's when God turns it into more faith. And we don't arrive until we have all the answers when we stand face to face with God. And he will answer every question. And guess what the answer will be? The answer will be Jesus. There's so many people today that are walking this road that we call deconstruction. And maybe you've heard of that and maybe you're thinking about that too. And what this is is basically saying... Many people are saying that they have this disappointment in church and in Christian people, especially in the American evangelical church. And I want to be one that just publicly owns it. There's a lot of problems with the modern church. There's a lot of problems. But let me say this. Jesus isn't the problem. And it seems like, I'm, it seems like saying today, I'm Christian tells people less about our faith and more about our politics or about what we like. And throughout history, some of the most reprehensible things that have been done in humanity has been done in the name of Jesus Christ. Falsely in the name of Christ. We see stories of sex abuse scandals in churches and covering up for predators, harboring racism and mixing humanism and idolatry into the messaging. And we wonder why some people look at church and say, man, I, I think I got better things to do because even those who don't know Christ know that this isn't the Jesus that we're supposed to be following. People are deconstructing from their faith because they've lost faith in the church and they've lost faith in Christianity and they're losing faith in Christians. But friend, that's not a gospel that was ever meant to call us to salvation. The gospel was never meant to call us to the church. The gospel was never meant to call us to a group of people or to a new moral code. The gospel was meant to call us to Jesus. And in Jesus, all of those things gain their proper perspective and you gain a love for those things because the gospel is meant to call you to him because none of those things can save you. 
At Graceway, we know we can't save you, but we want to point you to the one who does. That's why I don't want to say anything outside what the word says. It's only in the light of Jesus and who he is that any of those other things, his church, his people, any of those other things can be healthy in the light of Jesus. And when those things lose sight of Jesus too, that's when it becomes dangerous. I prayed in tears as I wrote this sermon this week because I wanted you to be compelled to see Jesus, not to see anything else. That's my prayer coming in, just see Jesus. And I pray that that's what you've seen today. So we see a phrase that is mentioned. I want to, as we close, I want to close in on this right here. We see a phrase that's mentioned three times in this text by Jesus Christ. He comes in and he says, peace be with you. Three times. Every time he shows up. Says it twice to the disciples when he sees them the first time. And he says it to Thomas as well. Peace be with you. What does that mean? Well, in some ways, it's just a formal greeting that people would give to people when they showed up. But in the spiritual sense with Jesus, I think it shows us his desire for his followers. That we have peace. And so the question as we close out this morning is, do you have peace? Are you in a season of peace in your life? Or are you in a season of chaos and doubt and skepticism and fear? And I don't want to tell you that if you're there, you're wrong. I want to tell you that if you're there, give that to him and let him turn that into a stronger faith. Put your eyes on those. Find the peace with him. When Jesus arrives, he brings peace with him. So do you have that peace? And as we bow our heads and we close our eyes this morning, the question is simply this, will I trust him? Will I trust him? Or will I just continue to be more loyal to my doubts and to my fears and get the same thing? When the doubts came, they conquered them by trusting in Jesus. We don't get to see the nail marks in his hands. We will one day, but not yet. But he says, can you trust me? Will you trust him? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, today's the day. If you're here today and you've been doubting and you need to talk to somebody, and I'm not saying don't talk. I'm not saying don't try to work through those things, but eventually it's going to come down to Jesus. Jesus. So you need to come and rededicate your life. Maybe you just come and just throw things at the cross and walk away and I'll pick them up again. Heavenly Father, do your thing. Do what only you can do in this room right now. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.